find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, and brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 15, brought to you by Lifetree at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. It's just the name of this podcast with a .com on the end of it. My name is Rick. I'm author of The Jesus-Centered Life and the upcoming book, Spiritual Grit, which will be coming out in about three weeks from the time that you're listening to, to this. And we'll tell you more about, uh, for those of you who, who love listening to this podcast, if you want to be involved in helping to launch Spiritual Grit during the week of its release, you can make a huge difference in the world if you decide you want to be part of that team. And there's a link on our Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com page for you to sign up to be on that launch team. You get lots of fun stuff um, coming your way and a lot of interaction with the community that's already on there. Uh, by now, we have about 400 people that, that want to be a part of that group, and it's a lively group. So I invite you to get involved there. I'm also the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible. You'll, you'll hear us talk about that as we reference uh, stories about Jesus and uh, connections to Jesus throughout the Bible. So today, oh, what a special day. We get to welcome back the Becky Nader for a third in a series of episodes. We're going to continue into late April. The series is called Heresies About Jesus That We Commonly Embrace. And we chose that title for the series just because of its marketing value. <laughs> Heresies About Jesus. That kind of captures your attention, doesn't it? So today, we're going to be focusing on something that the Becky Nader herself posted on our special pigs page. That's a page for those who are listeners and fans of this podcast who want to go all in, uh, like a pig, not a chicken, um, who want to go all in with Jesus. And on that page, the Becky Nader, uh, about a week or so ago, posted a question that we're going to go after today, and that is, what is sin? So say hello to the Becky Nader. Hi, it's <laughs> great to be back as always. Um, I was just telling Rick that I am getting close to like, just like weeks away from um, heading out in my van life. And um, I was showing him various things that I have packed up for my van, including my new portable toilet, which he's a little bit concerned about. Actually, uh, what I thought was interesting is that the Becky Nader's portable toilet bears a striking resemblance to the, the new microphone she bought to go into her laptop. <laughs> I don't know if, if she likes speaking into toilets or... <laughs> it, it was uncomfortable for me to see her pick up her barrel toilet and show us I mean, the, the beautiful features of her brand new, as yet unused, toilet. <laughs> so, um, yeah, a, a few weeks ago, um, I asked a question with intentionality. I, I don't ever usually throw things out without having intentionality, but I asked the question, what do you think that sin is? And the reason why I, I threw this out there um, is because I have been in a lot of different Christian communities over the years. And um, one thing that I've noticed over the years is that when people get really excited about pursuing passionately the heart of Jesus, 
they start to dive really in, really deep into it. You start to fall in love with reading the Bible. You start to get really excited about going to church and hearing sermons, and you start to massively consume Christian books. And it's such a great thing. I always love pe when people get into that because it's, it's like this passion and this fire. Um, but sometimes along the way, I've also noticed that people can start to draw away from that childish beginning, that playful heart they had when they first got to know Jesus. And sometimes when uh, we go into that pursuit, um, we end up finding a legalistic road and we start to get consumed with rules and right and wrong um, laws. And we also start to turn towards other people and we start to examine their lives and start to apply these same things to other people. And so I wanted to ask the question because it's really not a complex question, what is sin? And I think that sometimes we make it way more complex than it actually needs to be. And I love going back to the simplicity. It's, it's the reason why I love to talk about how do you pray? How do you read the Bible? What is sin is a very simple question. And so I think that Rick and I wanted to come on and kind of talk to everyone about the simplicity of sin um, and how you can participate it and what things you might want to be careful about. And, and it, obviously it's all under the context of how Jesus defines sin. It doesn't really matter that much how we define it. it really, to follow Jesus means to understand his heart and understand why he engaged sin the way he did, and then live into that, whatever that means. We don't come to this with our preconceived notions about what it is. We let him show us what it is. And part of the reason why this is part of a series on the heresies, we believe, is that even though, as Becky, you've said that it's a simple question, it's not a complex question, it's one of the most ubiquitous ways we've twisted simplicity into complexity. And it's clearly something that Jesus went after repeatedly. About a third of the time, a quarter to a third of the time that he was teaching in the New Testament, in the Gospels, he was confronting wrong ways of people living under sin or wrong ways that people define sin or wrong ways that people responded to sin. And by that, I mean the Pharisees got quite good at doing what Becky, you just said, kind of taking sin from a basis, from basically the Ten Commandments, and then adding hundreds and hundreds of other stipulations onto this that were very behavior-based. So, so it's good for us to, to recalibrate and get back like little children to what Jesus's response and engagement is to this thing called sin. So do we know where the line is between what is sin and not sin? Is it really behavior-based? Is it a shifting line? Is it different for each person? So why is it that uh, we sometimes naturally make things that aren't sin, sin? Why do we do that? So these are questions that uh, all of them, their answers are rooted and how Jesus responds to this. I, I was thinking as we were, uh, as we launch into this, I was thinking about Paul, who basically starts the book of Romans by this long exploration of sin. It's kind of a fascinating journey that Paul takes us on in the book of Romans, because his intention 
early on in the first, you know, three, three or four or five chapters of Romans, he's basically trying to say, look, we are all caught up in sin. And that's a good thing because that means we can all be caught up in grace as well. Where when sin increases, grace abounds. And then he's then once he said this truth, he's saying things like, but does that mean that we just sin and sin and sin because grace will get bigger and better? No, no, you don't get it. The grace comes in the context of an intimate relationship. And the reason that uh, our sin is caught up under grace is, is because we've had a restored relationship with Jesus. And once your restored relationship with Jesus is in place, you don't keep sinning and, and further destroying and breaking that relationship again. So Paul spends a good chunk of Romans trying to address this issue of what is sin and what isn't sin and how do we deal with it. So maybe a good way to start, Becky, is to, is to talk a little bit first personally for, for you and I, in what ways recently have we had to grapple with the whole idea of sin in our own lives? Meaning, how, how have we determined the line between sin and not sin in our own lives? Um, is there something that pops into your head uh, that where you've had to kind of address this in your life recently? So one thing I wanted to make sure that we clarified before we dive deep into this is yeah. that sin, sin can cause separation in our ability to hear from God. And we talk a lot about a relationship with Jesus where we're dependent on him and dependence and relationship are wholly dependent on our ability to hear his voice. And sometimes when we are caught up in a pattern of sin, we aren't able to hear that. And so we, we want to make sure that we, everyone understands that we know that sin is an, is an important thing for us to deal with and that it can, it can interrupt us from our relationship with God. So I just wanted to make that clarification so that people don't misunderstand the point of this episode. Um, it's a big deal and it does separate us from God. But um, when I think about sin in my own life, one thing that I know for certain is that, that I am wholly harder on myself than anyone else is hard on me. And so I, I have had to come to understand this over years and years and years with my relationship with Jesus, that he wants to be the one to pluck my weeds and, and that when I try to do it myself, it it's almost like he's sitting back and saying, okay, whenever you're ready for me to do that, I can take care of that pretty easily. And so I have learned to come to the point where I can come to Jesus with my sin and I can just totally openly talk to him about it in a, like a real relationship. Like I'm talking to my best friend with this confidence that he has so much grace for me and that he wants to heal that part of me through a process and that sometimes those things are easy and quick and sometimes they take a long time and that he knows the timing of those things mm. so that for me that's one thing specifically as it for recently my life has started to get really busy um, and i think it's only going to get busier and when I first got to where I am, I had a lot of time and space and I was able to conduct my mornings in this like really free way. And I was spending a lot of time with Jesus in the morning. 
And as we get busier, it's like, okay, I got to get out the door. I have so much to do. And I saw myself departing from that. And I, I had to, to come back and confess, like, I'm not, I'm depending on my own strength again, and I need to come back and I need to, to recommit my strength back to you. And I need to confess that that time has been taken, that I took it back from you and that you and I were working together on this. Um, and that you were calling the shots and now I'm calling the shots. And so I had to kind of come back and admit where I was at and then take a posture where I made space for that correction to happen. So that's it, a fascinating first thing to throw out on the table because what you're saying is that you, as things ramped up, you got kind of pressured into being, into kind of sidelining this time you had with Jesus, which I have to say, in, in sort of confessing that, it's not a universal sin. It was a sin uh, in your relationship with Jesus. It was a violation of yep. something in your relationship with Jesus. You wouldn't say then anyone who is busy and skips their quiet time in the morning has sinned. No. Because it's, it's only in this case that what you're putting on the table, this sense that you know inside that you violated something in your relationship with Jesus. Exactly. That's a, a fascinating start to this. Uh, you know, it reminds me that there are a couple of stories that in my life, even over the last weekend, is I participated in the March for Your Life on Saturday. Me too. Oh, you did? Did you go to Denver? No, I went to Colorado Springs. Oh, okay. Well, I was with about 30 or 40,000 people in Denver. Oh. And I was with my wife and my daughter, Emma. And we kind of made a last minute decision to go and didn't, weren't sure if we we're going to make it on time, but we, we, we were supposed to be listening to about 40 minutes of speeches, but it was two hours of speeches oh and then followed by the, the march. And it, the fascinating, the reason why this relates to sin is that I found myself in this huge crowd of people and I, and I very much support the, some of the end goals of the students at Parkland uh, in Parkland, Florida, who started this whole movement. My own daughter was involved in a school shooting, and I feel strongly about assault weapons and, and uh, laws surrounding gun ownership and things like that. So I, I feel strongly about this one area, and we, we felt strongly enough to go and march as a family. But I got down there, and I suddenly realized, oh, wow, I'm in a crowd of people that have radically different beliefs and views and access to grind, than my own. And we're passionate about it in the way that I'm passionate about Jesus. I felt in a growing sense, as a, the longer I was there, that I was among people who treated sort of politics as passionately as I treat my relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And there were speakers from the front who were saying things that they firmly believed and wanted the crowd to support by applauding. And this is where the sin part comes in. I had to decide, am I going to go along with the crowd and applaud the things that are being applauded right now, or will I withhold my applause to only support those things that I really could put my heart behind? And I found myself not applauding for most of those two hours, <laughs> and, I, and only applauding when I heard somebody say something that I really, but the, the, the issue was I had to decide in the moment, what is true? for me to support? And will I acquiesce to the crowd's pressure and support something I don't really support just because I feel pressured? That is an issue of sin 
for me. It's a violation of relationship in the sense that my uh, real obedience is not to the crowd. It's to, to adhere to the truth that Jesus has given me to follow. And then the other story that happened over the weekend is I, we were with some friends we hadn't seen for a while, and we have a, a common friend amongst us. This couple and my wife and I have a common friend that uh, we have some concerns about right now. So we were talking about this common friend we have concerns about, and the deeper we got into it, there were some pretty you know, passionate emotions associated with all this. And, we, and at the, after about 20 minutes of this, the wife of the, and the other couple spoke up and said, I, I don't know if we should keep talking this way about this person. This person isn't here right now. But why don't we move on to another subject? And so I had to think in the moment and since then, is anything I said a sin? The fact that I was talking about this shared person that we have a relationship with, and I had some hard things to say about that person, is that sin or not? And I had to decide in the moment, am I, is this okay or not? Because my friend raised the issue. So these are all questions of, wow, is, is that a, a sin for me or not? And how do we determine the, the line between these things? In the Old Testament, it was kind of spelled out in the Ten Commandments. These are sins. These kind of cover the gamut of what sin is. And then, as we've already mentioned, the Pharisees kind of added on to the Ten Commandments with a hundreds of other stipulations. And Becky, you've pointed out uh, on our phone conversation about this, that in Proverbs, there's lots of stuff that says yeah. you should be doing this. And tell me the distinction that you found between sin and kind of the, the, the stipulations that you read in Proverbs. Well, you know, Proverbs is such a wonderful place to go. And I go, I go to Proverbs and Psalms almost daily. I go to Proverbs because it's a book of wisdom and it's, it's a wise way to live your life. But it's not, it's not meant to be a place where we go to to say what is right and what is wrong. Another example is also all of the books of the Bible post-Jesus. Um, Paul's letters to the churches also give a, a very direct instructions about specific things. And I think we have a tendency to go to those. I've been reading in First and Second Timothy, and there's some very specific things um, that he's talking about. Um, how we should conduct ourselves. But we have to remember that those were letters written in specific contexts to specific situations in a specific time. Um, and they were not necessarily meant to be reported back to us as here's what's, where the line between sin is and here's the line between no sin. Otherwise, no woman would ever wear yoga pants and call themselves a Christian, as, as Rick liked to point out on the figs page. Wearing yoga pants would be a sin, but we all wear yoga pants and we follow Jesus. So, so there's, a lot of, there's a lot of confusion because you could go to the Bible and you could quote things to people, and we've done this. We've done it on social media. We've done it to our friends and our family members, and we've used it as a way to quote and, and maybe even keep other people's behavior in check the way that we think that it should be in check. And I think it's important to point out that those things were never meant to be a list of sin versus not sin. Yeah, in, in, in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments and many other stipulations, they're all behavior-based. 
And one of the things that is radical and revolutionary is that Jesus comes and shifts the standard for sin from behavior to the heart. He shifts the standard from trying harder to be better to maintaining a, uh, a truthful relationship. Just the way uh, in a marriage, if, if, uh, if you sin in marriage, it doesn't kill the relationship right away. Most sin in a close, intimate relationship has a kind of a cancerous influence. The longer it's allowed to grow unchecked, eventually it's going to destroy that relationship. And this is the kind of shift that Jesus is trying to bring into, the, into this whole conversation. In fact, in his first major teaching in Matthew chapter 5, we went through this a few weeks ago on a previous podcast, but it's good to go back to it and, and reacquaint ourselves with how Jesus starts to introduce this whole issue of what is sin and what isn't sin. Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, 17, that he, he hasn't come to abolish the law. He's come to fulfill the law. But he, it, and then he basically says um, after that, you know, it's wrong to murder, but guess what? If you have anger in your heart towards somebody, that's like murder. Oh, and it's also wrong to commit adultery, but if you look sideways at a woman with lust, that's actually like adultery. He's shifting the standard from the behavior to the reality that exists in the heart. And he's saying this reality is a damaging influence on the relationship. And he's, and he's basically saying you're all under these standards caught up under sin. There's not one of you that can exist outside of it. And you can't possibly meet the behavior standards that are necessary for not sinning. He's, he's backing us into a corner, basically, and saying, you're going to need me. <laughs> you're going to need a, a deep, intimate connection to me in order to deal with your problem of sin. And, and at the end of this Matthew 5, there couldn't have been a single person listening to him that didn't realize, wow, I I guess I'm a sinner. And that really is the purpose. Jesus wants to reconnect us to his life instead of us relying on our life, which is some of the unintended, you know, some of the consequence of the Old Testament law was it was exactly what the Pharisees were doing that Jesus hated. This uh, sin management, behavior management system that they had set up to try to keep themselves righteous. And what Jesus is ultimately saying is all of your human systems to keep yourself righteous, they don't work. Your only hope is to be connected to me. So we've talked a little bit here, Becky, about our, our own relationship to sin and how we determine what's going on inside of us and that it's really relationship-based. But then you've kind of hinted at, well, how do we deal with the sin that we see in others? Mm -hmm. how, how do we relate to that because it's all around us or it's sin that we see in the culture? When do we confront and when do we accept? Do we follow this thing of loving the sinner and hating the sin? And what does that mean anyway? And is that really Jesus' standard? So what do you think of when you think about our relationship to the sin we see in others or in the culture? Well, I think that, first of all, when we talk about instructing and when we talk about confronting, it's important to go back and, and look at the stories where Jesus did that, where he instructed and confronted someone. I think about the, the woman who was about to be stoned and the gentleness 
and the grace that he gave her and the love that he showed her and the support and strength that he gave her in showing her who she really was. And the, the difference between the way that Jesus confronted in a situation like that, where the woman who came and poured perfume on him, I mean, there's a lot of examples, is that there's this gentleness that's about um, giving strength, not taking it away. And in, in times in my life where somebody has confronted me in a way that took strength away from me, um, they came to me in a manner that was demeaning, that was debilitating, that was shame giving, and that they were, um, I would say, standing on the sidelines. They were sitting in the bleachers of my life and throwing comments from the bleachers. They weren't in the game of my life. If you're going to be in a place where you're confronting someone about the sin in their life, then you need to go grab your bat and your helmet and you need to go get in the game with that person. And if you're not in a place where you can do that, or if you're not in a place where you're willing to do that, you're really not the right person to confront someone else's sin. I also have experienced so many times where I've been in a situation where I needed to be confronted and somebody instead came and offered support to me. And they did that in a way that built me up where they said, I know who you are. And I know that you're greater than this. And I see all of these great qualities, which is why I have, I have every confidence that you're going to be able to overcome this. I'm going to get in the game with you and I'm going to be here to support you and help you through that. That's a posture of support. And I think it's important to remember that you can't possibly be in that posture over social media. You, you have to be in a face-to-face relationship or at least have been in a face-to-face relationship with that person in order for that to be possible. And I think we see a lot of sin confronting happening over comment streams or different social media platforms where I would say that's inappropriate for us to do it that way. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up this, the, the, the encounter Jesus has with the adulterous woman who, who's set up to be uh, stoned to death, and uh, he's riding in the dirt. And it's such a fantastic illustration of this, because what is he doing riding in the dirt? People have always speculated, what's, what is he riding in the dirt about? And, and I think that he's trying to discern his way forward with this. Mm-hmm. Because he's fundamentally and ferociously for her. He understands what's going on. She's been set up to be executed at his expense. So he, he communicates how fundamentally for her he is when he saves her life by the shrewdest question he could have asked. And at the end of that encounter, if you can imagine what kind of connection she now has to him, he has just saved her life from certain death. She's sure she's going to die. There's no doubt about it. And this guy says something that makes everybody drop their stones. And she's been set free. Her captivity is over. But Jesus follows it now by saying, now that we're in relationship, don't sin anymore. Because now your sin is is an issue between us. So he says, go and sin no more. So there is a confrontation at the end of this tender encounter, this ferociously advocating encounter, both things happen in the same encounter. 
So Jesus is not shy about confronting sin or prodding us to turn and repent and come back to him. But he's all, that all happens under an umbrella of ferocious advocacy for us and for our relationship. If, if somebody has cancer and you say, don't get treated for it, don't go to the doctor, just hope that it'll go away, it's for sure going to advance and destroy. And so when Jesus sees sin in others, he doesn't want it to advance and destroy, to be something that comes and eats away at the relationship. So of course he has to confront it. And you and I, Becky, have both experienced Jesus confronting sin in us, sometimes directly and sometimes through others. And when it's done well, it's a sense, I can remember a, a close friend of mine confronting something that I said that was really immature and sinful for me. I was, I was and the way he confronted it was, uh, he started by saying, Rick, have you considered that what others, how others are responding to you right now is actually they're responding to the truth inside your heart that you're not willing to admit right now. And the reason you're bothered by other people's responses to you right now is because they're actually seeing something in your heart that you're unwilling to admit is there. And it just stopped me in my tracks. He asked me a question and he invited me to wrestle with it, but he was confronting me. But he gave me space, the space and dignity to repent in the moment. The space and dignity to repent on my own, without shaming me into it, without jabbing his finger, he left this important repentance decision to me um, and threw it in my lap. It, it gave me uh, respect and it also convicted me at the same time. And I was able to quickly agree with him. You're totally right. Uh, I'm amazed that you saw that. And it, 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 you can you know, sometimes we get this feeling when we're confronted of this tremendous freedom we have now because now we see a way we can drag what, what has been in the darkness into the light and this in this tremendous freedom we experience a restoration of relationship too and it, it's a great feeling it's not so fun to be confronted but it's a great feeling to experience the aftermath of it anything about any of that becky that that sparks something with you that was great i i wholeheartedly agree that when it comes to sin, um, and it's especially when it comes to confronting sin with someone that you feel that you have the relationship and you've been called to confront, that the relationship being intact is a good lit litmus test, you know, for how you're doing it and how you're going about it. Wondering questions is a great way to go. Also, just building that person up and Re reminding them of all the positive qualities you see in them and how strong and courageous you see them to be and how you know that they can persevere through anything. Um, when you build someone up in that way and you show them all the great things that you see about them, then sliding in that one thing that you're like, and I, you know, I, I, I love you enough to say, have you thought about this action in your life? That's, that's bringing strength to someone not taking it away. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I'm remembering uh, this powerful thing that Jesus says about, about how we relate to sin in others and in ourselves. He says, you know, before you do that, 
consider the log that's in your eye before you start plucking out the speck in another person's eye. Because actually plucking out a speck from another person's eye is a vulnerable, intimate thing to do. If you're gonna touch something that's in somebody else's eye, wow, that there's a lot of damage that can happen if you don't do that delicately. And so how are you gonna do that if your own eyesight is blocked by the massive log that's already in your eye? He's really saying it's okay to um, confront or address um, what you see in others, but your first move is to come clean with me about you. Get yourself in a position where you can see well instead of blocked by all this stuff. You said that the very beginning, Becky, which I thought was a, a good word, that if, if we're in sin, you know, sort of continuing in it instead of repenting from it, it can really block our relationship with Jesus. We can't really hear him. We can't really see well. And then we're dangerous people. We have no business plucking stuff out of other people's eyes when we're not in a place to see well. So this is a good warning shot across our bow from Jesus. Um, and I love the other thing that Paul says, um, which is one of the more extraordinary things Paul says. He's talking about how people have a problem with people. I, I think it's in Ephesians where he's talking to church at Ephesus and saying, you know, the people have a problem with me. I don't really even think about whether they have a case. Like, I, I really am sinning, and I need to be confronted. I don't really think about that. I let the Holy Spirit convict me about what's wrong, the things that I say and do. It's a radical statement, but he's really saying that uh, my standard is the Holy Spirit's conviction in me. That doesn't make me free to do whatever I want. It means that I'm responsible to my relationship with Jesus. And if I'm convicted by something, I respond to it. And you, I think you pointed out, Becky, about this as well, that because the Spirit might point out something to me that is sin for me and needs to be addressed, it's not then, therefore, a universal standard for everyone else. You want to say something about that, too? Yeah, you know, when we're in this dependent place where we're listening to Jesus, he's going to give you instructions and they may even be specific instructions for seasons of your life. Um, many of you know that I have been, um, I've, I've podcasted about this multiple times on this podcast. And also they say podcast about my diet experiment with Jesus. And I can tell you that there have been multiple times that Jesus has just said, not right now, not what we're focusing on. That's not where I want you to go. And then there's been other times where he said, yeah, we're going to do this um, and we're going to work on, on that together. So you could easily say, well, dieting is a sin because Jesus told me not to do it. That's not the point of what he was communicating to me. What he's saying is that there's seasons where he wants us to focus on certain things and there's seasons where he wants us to focus on others. And what he is speaking to you, like right now, it's really important and I know this because him and I have talked about this a lot. It's really important in this season that I am completely dependent on decision-making with him, that we are together, that we are on the same page, that I'm not running ahead because that's my tendency. And I, you know, I think that that is something that we're working through together, but it would be, it would be behoove me to go to Rick and say, Rick, if you skipped your, your quiet time, I have to confront you. <laughs> In fact, I'm going to call Bev every day and find out if you spent your quiet time because Jesus told me that 
doing that was important. So we have to be careful that when Jesus is working on stuff in our lives, that we don't start working on that stuff in other people's lives. And it's just, it's our human nature. We have a tendency to do it. Um, and it's okay. It's just our natural tendency. Maybe we're excited about something that Jesus is doing in our life and what he's showing us. And then we want everyone else to experience that same excitement, but that may not be what they, what him and, and that person is working on. And it's really none of our business, what he's working on with other people. And in the macro picture here, we, we, we might put sin under the category of disobedience. And that's a common answer to what sin really is. But disobedience tends to uh, lead us down a path that Jesus is trying to take us away from. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants or slaves. I call you friends. A servant or a slave operates under obedience as their primary relational connection. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm changing the game here. I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. And in a friendship, the standard is whatever is it a violation of the relationship becomes sin. Anything that works to destroy or undermine the relationship is sin. So in that sense, when Jesus' general response to sin is to repent, that means to stop walking away from him and start walking toward him. You can see this in your own close relationships. It means to stop moving away from the person who's important to you and moving back toward them, whatever it takes. And you might have to admit Whatever is the blockage, you might have to admit it and get it out in the open in order to move back towards the person who's important to you. So Peter, for instance, uh, betrays Jesus three times, hides during the crucifixion, surfaces again after the resurrection, goes back to fishing. So Peter has abdicated the way of life that Jesus has said is going to be the rest of his life. You're going to be the foundation of the church. Peter's abdicated that and gone back to fishing. And he has walked away from Jesus. And this encounter that Peter has with Jesus on the beach post-resurrection is really Jesus inviting Peter to start walking toward him again instead of away from him. And Peter does. He, Jesus asked him, listen to the standard that Jesus puts out for Peter. He asked him three times, do you love me? That is a relational question that he's trying to surface with Peter. He's trying to say, Peter, if you embrace your love for me, then it's time to stop walking away from me and start walking toward me again. And as you, and at the third time, Peter responds, you know I love you. The very response Jesus was trying to surface in him. Then he says, okay then, Peter, I've told you twice now and I'll tell you a third time. If that's true, then walk toward me and start feeding my sheep because that's your true calling. Get out of the lake, stop fishing, for fish and start fishing for men the very way that I called you. So what, he's, what he does on the beach is he changes the direction of Peter's momentum. It had been away from him, now it's toward him. And, it, and the result of that is Peter feeding the sheep of Jesus. So this is the fundamental movement of Jesus in our life to restore relationship, to walk toward him instead of away. So let's, uh, Becky, let, let's maybe close by talking about very, just very simply, how do we deal with sin in our own lives and how do we deal with sin in, in, the, in the lives of others and in our culture? So for you, uh, what's your simple response to those two things, sin in your own life and sin outside of yourself? So for sin in my own life, I usually like to sit 
and talk with Jesus about it in my journal. You know, I, I, I like to come with a posture of confession. I think confession is something that is often talked to. It's a practice. Um, I think it's a core strength that you have to learn to learn to deal with. And sometimes through that confession, we may have a conversation and he may say specifically to me, like, I want you to talk to this person about this. Um, so sometimes he asks me to go and, and confess this to someone else in a spirit of accountability. And sometimes it's advice or what do you think? What do you see? But those confession is always the first part. And then the second part is always me asking him how we're going to go about dealing with this. and. That asking how we're going to go about dealing with this, most of the time it, it comes back to him saying, well, I'm going to, I'm going to work on this. But sometimes he asks me specifically like, well, I want you to stop or start doing something and we're going to work on this slowly. But it, it, it really is, it's a, it's a dependent relationship where we're working on something together and it's always feels very easy. That's, it's not a hard thing me. When it comes to, con to confronting other people's sin, I really pray about that. And I have to tell you that a lot of times I will see something and I will just want to go at it. And I just hear the spirit say, I don't want you to do anything about it. <laughs> I want you to let it go. I would say that that's actually probably a primary response I get. A secondary one though, that has been rare, um, has been a quiet conversation where I, I practice a, a practice of building that person up, of having intentional time with them, working into it in a, in a spirit of relationship and asking a lot of questions about what is going on with you in your life right now? How can I support you? Um, I've noticed lately that you've been this way. What do you think is causing that? and inviting them to be a part of it rather than me making all the decisions about how that's going to go for them because they're a person and they have their own will. Um, and Jesus shows us love by, by giving us our own free will. And it's not his desire for us to take people's free will away for them from them in the same way he doesn't for us. So Good. I think it's important that people feel like they have, that they always have permission to take your advice or not take it. So for me, these two things, how do I deal with sin in my own life? How do I deal with sin in others or in the culture? I think the answer number one is we, I have the spirit of Jesus living in me. That's not rhetorical. It's not a little poetic flourish. It's an actual reality. So those of us who have the spirit of Jesus living in us, if we are in relationship with the spirit within us, there is a uncomfortability a disquiet, a dissonance that we feel inside when we are in sin in some way. The Spirit, as Paul said, will let us know. And then the question is, do we listen or not? Do we ignore it? Do we stuff cotton in our ears? Do we make excuses inside? Do we put, put the Spirit off? Or do we respond to the Spirit? And for me, the issue is always, how am I going to respond to the Spirit? And to, just to be honest, Sometimes when the spirit convicts me about something, I feel dissonance inside about something. I respond really quickly, like, oh, you're right. You're right. I'm going to deal with it right now. I had to do this the other day with my daughter, Emma, because I got uh, angry with her about something. And I thought, oh, anger's not a sin. 
but anger like a toddler is. So I went and confessed to her and apologized to her and asked her forgiveness uh, for the kind of anger I expressed to her. Well, that was immediate. I knew right away in my spirit, that was wrong. You need to own it and, and, and do something to restore your relationship with Emma. There are other times when I feel conviction or I have to chew on it for a while, a day or two or a week or a month to chew on um, what, what is it I'm gonna do about this and what exactly is the sin part of this. I need clarity even though I feel conviction from the spirit and sometimes, honestly, I need to build up my courage to deal with whatever I'm being convicted about so that I can deal with it. But what is true is that I can't ignore the impetus of the spirit in me. He's a C.S. Lewis called him the hound of heaven. <laughs> he's chasing us and he's chasing us to free us from captivity. And some, and some of our deepest captivity is when we hang on to the sin he's convicted us about. So, so in my own life, that's how that works. And, and in the lives of others, um, I, I think, I guess that my primary way of responding to others or to the culture is to reflect back what I'm experiencing. I guess one way of saying it in sort of psychological terms is I reflect back um, an I message instead of a you message. And I'm experiencing you this way, or this is how that feels for me right now. And, and um, or this is how this influence in the culture strikes me or impacts me, um, I bring it back to how the action is impacting me. Instead of pointing my finger out, I try to get in touch with what it's doing to me. And that is a form of invitational confrontation. If you show someone the impact of their sin on you, then you're essentially inviting them to do something about it or not. It's up to them. But now whatever has been hidden in the darkness has been dragged into the light. No longer am I uh, hiding the fact that this sin that I've encountered is impacting me somehow or impacting others somehow. So again, I love how you frame this, Becky, that all of this is under the umbrella of our dependent relationship with Jesus. And that's the way he wants it. He does not want us to be dependent on an outside set of rules and regulations to follow. He doesn't want us following a thing. He wants us following him. And ultimately, our relationship with sin is a primary area where he wants to deal with us directly in relationship. And it's, it's important to him. Any last thoughts, Becky, before yeah. we uh, sign off here? Just as a little kind of maybe practical assignment, a lot of the letters that Paul wrote were to churches who were dealing with some kind of sin happening in the church. And those churches came, if you read the letters from that perspective, either one of two things was happening. One, that church came from a very legalistic background and they were falling back into that legalistic background. And so he was trying to bring them back to the heart of Jesus and back to that relationship. Or they grew up in a maybe a pagan situation and they came to know the Lord. And so they were kind of out of control in the way that they were dealing with the Holy Spirit. And so he was trying to bring them back closer to more rules and regulations. And hey, there's some rules here. There are some 
some, some structures that we got to follow. We have to stay within some structures. And when you read the letters of Paul in that way, you realize that that is our tendency as well. We fall, we fall back and forth between those two different ways. We like rules and regulations because they're easier. We like to just be free and do whatever we want because that's easier. Um, and and the, somewhere in the middle is this, this happy medium. And that happy medium really is just that total focus and dependence on Jesus that, that Rick was talking about. Yeah, and, and as you said that, it just reminded me as well that in the book of Revelation, in the first part of it, Jesus is speaking to seven different churches, and there's a cadence to what he's saying to these churches. And in each case, the cadence is something like, um, I love you. I love it when you've done this and this and this, and oh, you're really good at this. You're really good at that. But I have something against you. And the against you is personal. It's Jesus saying, this thing that you do is damaging to our relationship. It's, it's diminishing our relationship. It's hurtful to our relationship. I have this against you. And what will you now do to restore the relationship? Will you repent or will you hang on to this? Because if you hang on to it, it's going to continue to come between us. It's going to eat away like termites in our relationship. So that's another interesting thing is to go through the first part of Revelation and look at the cadence that Jesus uses to respond to these churches who he loves and are doing great things, but he does have a bone to pick with each of them. And what is that bone to pick with them? Uh, it'd be interesting to, to read through that with this filter of how what they're doing is impacting the relationship. So, of course, it's fantastic to have the Becky Nader back on. As we said before, she'll be on occasionally, especially when something is right down the middle of the plate for her, and that's, that, that's the case with this one. So we look forward to uh, reconnecting with, with Becky again down the line. Maybe she'll, be, maybe she'll be in her van with that beautiful new portable toilet somewhere in the back corner. Um, <laughs> uh, we we'll, will not we'll get, be doing a video podcast. No, you won't be sitting on it. It'll just be there. So we would never do that. So anyway, we look forward to the next time the Becky Nader's on. Hey, gang, thanks for listening. And remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail on our website, which is paintridiculousattentiontojesus.com. Just find our podcast section. And, and for this one, you're looking for season three, episode 15. And don't forget, if you go there, you can also sign up for the launch team for Spiritual Grit. Though, If you do this soon, you're going to get the full introduction to the book that we're going to send you and an entire digital copy of the book if you're on that launch team plus some other sweet surprises that no one else is going to get except the people on that team and all we're doing is asking you to help us out a little bit with a little bit of effort to put the word out to others about the book and to actually read the book and then uh, go on to Amazon the week that the book releases and actually buy the book so that you can be a qualified reviewer of the book. We're going to give it to you digitally, but we're going to ask you to make a sacrifice and buy that book so that Amazon can recognize your review of the book. And the more people we get to do this, the more possibility that the word will get out and more people will be drawn into and impacted by a relationship with Jesus that gives them some core strength that they lack now. So really joining the launch team for Spiritual Grit is like uh, joining up to be a little missionary. So I encourage you to do it. 
Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from LifeTree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next week. Bye.